I've been doing some uh, research on some things and studying uh, quite a bit lately on, on some subjects. And in the process of doing that, I, I've come across uh, some books that have really struck me. And I've, I've said this many times before, but I'm one of those that never finishes a book. You know, I, I get to reading it, I'm studying, and then something catches my mind and I go off in a different direction. And, and uh, But I actually was getting to the end of this book and, and uh, there was something in there that really struck me and um, really made me think about uh, some things. I'll share a little bit more as to why this particular uh, subject hit me and these people hit me. But um, it's from a book written by Gordon MacDonald, Rebuilding Your Broken World. And uh, in one chapter here, he, he, he says this. In his autobiography, A General's Life, General Omar Bradley writes of the first time he met William Westmoreland, who many years later became commander of the American forces in Vietnam. On the occasion Bradley describes, Westmoreland was a cadet, first captain in the West Point class of 1936. The encounter between the two occurred during summer maneuvers, war games in which Westmoreland commanded a battalion defending a hill. The young captain and his men performed so poorly in the mock battle that the attackers succeeded in overrunning them. General Bradley, then a major, had been an observer that day, and when the exercise on the hill was ended, he took the young field officer aside and said, Mr. Westmoreland, look back at that hill. Look at, at it from the standpoint of the enemy. Turning, Westmoreland later wrote, I became aware for the first time of a concealed route of approach that it was logical for an attacker to use. Because I had failed to cover it with my defense, he, Bradley as umpire, had ruled for the attacking force. It's fundamental, Major Bradley said firmly, to put yourself always in the position of the enemy. He was speaking, of course, about those moments when the soldier plans for battle and determines how he will prevent the enemy from seizing positions that are his to defend. You might wonder, well, what does that have to do with the spiritual and our spiritual walk? Well, the reality is, is that we have an attacker. We have one who wants so badly to have control of our life, who wants us to fail on a regular basis. He wants us to carry around with us the baggage of life that keeps us from uh, understanding God and his word, from having the kind of relationship and fellowship with God that God desires for us. We need to be like William Westmoreland who looks back at the hill and says, that's a weak spot in my life. That's an area where God can only protect me. I need to give this to God because the enemy knows that that's my weak spot. The enemy knows that's how he can get to me. And we have to constantly, diligently be watching for those things in our life. It's easy to assume that we can do these things on our own in our own strength but the strongholds that satan uses to make us ineffective unproductive unproductive for him for god is our self-sufficiency or pride in our perceived ability to do things in our own power and strength this isn't anything new if you've read uh, the scriptures at all you know you see this uh, sort of thing over and over again let me just encourage us today, let's look at some scripture 
I want to take us through some verses that talk about this uh, and hopefully at the end give you a word of encouragement so don't get too discouraged as we go through. Uh, one of the things that I'll share with you is that at the end is, uh, there is hope and there is promise. So if you would turn with me to Exodus chapter 19, we're going to be reading verses 3 through 8. And if you're uh, using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 71, page 71 of the Pew Bible. And it's Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 8. Let me just set the stage for you briefly as you're turning there. Uh, This was a time when uh, God had led the Israelites out of the nation of Egypt where they were slaves. Uh, He had taken them out. He had performed multiple miracles. He had demonstrated for them who he was and what he was. And and, uh, they had no reason to doubt and question him at all. Uh, and yet we have uh, this exchange that takes place. So beginning in verse 3 of chapter 19, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him <clears throat> excuse me, out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so uh, the thing that uh, God is uh, desiring of them and of us is uh, first of all that they would obey his voice. In other words, as he's speaking, and he speaks uh, oftentimes through other people, he speaks into our lives, is that we would obey his voice. Uh, His voice may come in all kinds of different ways, but his voice comes. And in this case, the voice was coming through Moses, who was uh, God's mouthpiece to the Israelites at that point. And the second thing that he asks in there, if you noticed, is that you keep my covenants. I'm making an an agreement, a covenant with you. A promise that we both are making toward one another. Uh, That if you will obey me and keep my covenant, then I will make you a great nation. I will set you apart. I will be your God. I will walk with you. I will do all of these things with and for you. Well, notice what the response of the people was. Verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set them... And set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. Do you see any problem there? Do you see a certain sense of arrogance at all as you read that? No problem, God, I got this one. Right? Hey, you know, God, you, just, you want me to obey your voice? Okay, I got it. You want me to obey your covenant? Hey, no problem, God, I'm right there. What's the problem? The problem is that as people, we're not really very good at keeping those promises to God, are we? I, I don't know about you, but, but, you know, there's times when I say, God, I promise I will never do that again. I promise I will never think that. I'll never say that. I, and the next thing I know, it comes again. Right? And anybody else relate to that? Because that's who we are as people. We're imperfect. 
And so here's these Israelites, they, they've got this one little thing, and, and they're, they're there and they're communicating, and Moses says, just do those two things. Obey my word, my voice, and keep my covenant. And so you would think, okay, that, that, that's pretty easy. I think you know, they'll, they'll be able to handle that pretty well. Well, the problem is, is that Moses goes back up onto the mountain. And this time he's gone for 40 days, right? He's meeting with God, and they're having conversation up there, and the people don't see their spokesman anymore. You know, it's, it's kind of like, have you ever been in a, in a position where you're in the middle of something really, really serious, you're kind of, maybe it's at work, or maybe it's someplace uh, in, in something else that you're doing, and you're following somebody, and all of a sudden that person disappears, like, for whatever reason, they're out of your sight for a period of time. And what happens? You start to grumble and complain with one another. Well, I think he wanted me to do this. I think that. I think, I think we should be going here. I think we should be going there. Why? Because we like to have that one in front of us. Well, in this case, Moses has gone up onto the hill, up onto the mountain. But to their chagrin, I guess, they can't see him. But they look up on the mountain and they know that he's up meeting God and they can see the cloud up on the mountain. They should have been able to kind of like, okay, we got this, we're, we're, we're okay here, we'll, we'll be fine, God. It's you and me, right? We're, 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 we're okay on this thing. Well, let's uh, look back a couple of chapters. Let's look at Exodus uh, 32. That is on page 85, if you're in the Pew Bible. Exodus chapter 32, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 5. So, they've, they've gotten, just got done saying, okay, we're going to obey your voice, and we're going to keep your covenant. Right? Chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, uh, he's been gone a long time. You know, it's probably 20, 30 days by now, right? As for this man Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, what had, what had Moses just got done telling them that God had told him. God was the one that brought them up out of Egypt. It wasn't Moses, right? Moses was the, the man who was in front of them, but it was God who was doing the leading. You follow me? Okay. We do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold, that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. This has been only a few weeks, folks, like 20, 30 days, a month. The God who brought us up out of Egypt was a golden calf? 
When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now he's bringing it back to the Lord, but he's giving them a calf to bow down to. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Are any of you like that? Because I am. You see, when I'm reading this and I'm thinking about this and I think, you know, how could they do that? And then I think, how can you do some of the stuff you do? How can you think some of the things you think? How can you let those things come out of your mouth that come out of your mouth? Why do you say and do some of the things you do? On Friday night, we, we were out and uh, we were coming home. <clears throat> and Caden was up in the front of us and he got up near the house. And we hadn't left any lights on. And uh, he kind of stopped and he waited for us to catch up. And I said, well, what's the matter? He said, well, I'm scared. It's dark. And out of the mouth of his mature Christian grandfather comes, well, that's stupid. Why would you be scared of the dark? Because there might be something in there. Well, that's stupid. And the person who was saying it was the stupid one. And I had to apologize. Yesterday. It was so heavy on my heart, honestly, that when he got in the car after basketball... I think it was one of the first things that I said to him. So I'm sorry. That was just a stupid thing on Grandpa's part to do that. Because you see, out of our mouths, it reveals what's in our hearts. And that's what Satan loves. Satan desires for us to be arrogant and disobey God's voice. See, he wants just the opposite, doesn't he? God wants us to obey, and Satan loves when we disobey. Because when we're disobeying, then we're projecting something about God that is not true. The other thing that Satan loves is that we're self-seeking and fail to keep God's covenant. I don't know about you, but I find that it's so easy for us to fall into that self-seeking, self-gratifying, like, I've got it all together. I know what I'm doing. I can handle anything type of mentality. And it's at those times when we probably will end up failing the most and get ourselves in a lot of trouble. So Aaron built them the God with a small G, this calf that they bowed down to and they worshipped, and he helps them with that. And they're not obeying. And they're not keeping the covenants. But, you know, that's kind of early on. And so certainly later on they probably get things figured out, right? So let's just take a quick look over at Joshua. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that after Moses had led the people out and he instructed them and he did all these things and 
And there came a point where he went up onto the mountain and God took him home. He died and God had prepared another man to take his place. And Joshua was that man. Joshua was the man who becomes then the leader, the physical leader of Israel. He's the one that's out there showing them where to go, what to do, how to act, those kinds of things. And, and so by now, you know, Moses, you know, he's written all of these books of the law, the five books of the law. He's taught them all of these things. He's talked to God. He's helped intervene with them and, and, and brought them along this way. And then Joshua comes along, and Joshua's been teaching and helping them as well. So let's, let's turn to Joshua chapter 24. And we're going to look at verse 23, and that's on page 235 in your, in your uh, pew Bible. So Joshua 24, verse 23. <clears throat> and Joshua is just about to die. He's, he's at the end of his life. He's giving final instructions to the nation of Israel. Okay? So this is one of the last things that he's going to tell them. He says, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. What? Put away the foreign gods? Wait a minute, I've had all of this teaching from Moses. Joshua's been teaching me. God's been working miracles in our nation. And I have to put away foreign gods? Why do I need to be told about that? Because we so quickly turn back to the foreign gods. The gods that you and I have to guard ourselves against. The gods that if we don't look back and we see the attack route of Satan, we will open up a door for him to come in and ruin our lives. We have to be prepared. We have to be paying attention. We have to think through some of these things. Well, of course we know that by the time Jesus comes in the New Testament, that they had it all figured out, right? So let's look at some instruction from Jesus. Turn with me, if you would, to, to Luke chapter 18. That's on page 1042 for the Pew Bible. Uh, Luke chapter 18, and we're going to begin uh, at verse 9. And Jesus is in the middle of telling them some parables and teaching them and helping them to grasp how they should live. And um, so we know that they've probably got everything all figured out. So here's what he says. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Get that one? He told it to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Do any of you ever look in the mirror and say, I'm righteous, I got it together, I'm all set, right? I hope not. I hope I don't. That, were, uh, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. You ready for this one? God, wait a minute, now the Pharisees, you know, they're like the leaders, right? They're, they're, they're very knowledgeable, they've got, it, they've got it all together, right? God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector that's over there. None of you ever do that, right? You never point at somebody else and say, I'm glad I'm not like that. 
No, this is just somebody like me. Nobody else does that. He goes on, he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see the spirit and the attitude that God is looking for is like that man. Who can't even look because he is so conscious of his failings, his shortcomings, his sinful behavior, that when he thinks about looking up to God, he can't even look because it's too overwhelming for him. He's not one who's standing there pounding his chest like, look at me. But instead, he's bowing his head, saying, don't look at me, for I am a sinner. I don't deserve to have any grace shown to me whatsoever. And Jesus goes on and he says, I tell you, this man, the second man, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Yesterday at our men's breakfast, we had a young man who was there and I confessed to the guys who were there. I was asked by Mike Turnus on uh, Friday if it would be okay to have this man uh, share with us. And I had never met him. I didn't know anything about him. I was a little apprehensive. And he came in and what I heard from him yesterday was a man. He was a young man, but he was so humble in how he viewed himself. And he recognized that uh, here he is, he had, he had come from poverty, he uh, went off uh, to school, he got grants, he's now an electrical engineer, looking to do some things for God, not looking to fill his pocketbook, he's looking to, to, to uh, fill the kingdom, but he did it with a humble, humble heart. And what he shared with us yesterday was just so overwhelming. That's like this man. That we would humble ourselves and recognize who we really are as people and not be so self-righteous that we think we can do everything ourselves for ourselves. So Jesus had pointed out that arrogance leads to self-exaltation. And folks, self-exaltation is not a good thing. We have to be careful with that. James emphasizes the same point. Uh, So if you would turn with me to the book of James, that's on page 1200, it's James chapter 3. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, James chapter 4, on page 1201. Uh, James chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. James is writing to believers here, and he said, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Which is better, to be Self-exalted or God-exalted? Wouldn't we rather be God-exalted? To have God 
lift us up and empower us and, and engage us in such a way that we are right with Him, connected with Him, glorifying Him in all that we say and do and even what we think. That we can look at God and praise Him to His grace and glory and honor. So I was thinking about how does, how does arrogance, how does our arrogance kind of show itself? You ever think about that? Like, okay, what, what kind of things do I say and do that shows an arrogance? What kind of things do I say and do that is not respectful of other people, respectful of God, respectful of his people? Let's just turn back a page to, uh, now I want to go to uh, James chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 to 9. I believe this is one of the ways, uh, besides some actions that you can do, uh, but this is one of the ways that we can do that. So it's on page 1200 in the Pew Bibles, and uh, James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers. By the way, I want to tell you that I think of this verse often when I'm asked to be here in the pulpit. It is an over overwhelming thought for me. To get up and to share God's word, to teach it with integrity is an overwhelming thought. Pastor Brian and I have had this conversation and I know he feels the same way. And I hope and pray that I never, never get to the point where, ah, oh, it's no big deal, I'll just get up and say something. I want to teach the word of God with integrity and honor to him. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Think about that statement. If you never mess up in something that you say, then you're perfect. Well, what's the reverse of that? If you're like me, and you mess up and you say something stupid, you need to take care of it. You need to get it right. Because you're not perfect. And be careful if you start thinking you are perfect. You're going to stumble and fall even more. You're going to make more and more mistakes. You're going to mess up more and more. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so shall the tongue of a, I'm sorry, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members. Staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on, by, on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Does a spring uh, pour forth 
from the same opening both fresh and salt water. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. You see where we can identify for ourselves. I'm not talking about judging somebody else. I'm talking about judging yourself. What comes out of my mouth? Is it God-honoring, God-pleasing, or is it hurtful, harmful, poisonous to other people? Do I use it as a club, a verbal club to beat somebody down? Or do I do it as something to encourage somebody and build them up? God wants us to use our tongue for good. Satan wants us to use our tongue for evil and for negative. So we can tell by what comes out of the mouth. And what did we just read? Well, we read that a forest is set aside, I mean, set ablaze by a small fire. <laughs> and the tongue is a fire. Have you ever been with somebody whose tongue is a fire? It's like they open their mouth and you just feel like, ooh, I just got burned really bad. Or, or that one really hurt. That one really stung. You can light a fire, a negative with our tongue. We have to be really on guard for that. And again, I'm not asking you to judge other people. I'm asking you to look at yourself in these areas. Well, another way is by what comes out of the mouth. No human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. It displays what is inside of us. Isn't that a scary thought? You ever think about that? Like, uh, like I was sharing about, you know, what I said to Caden. I mean, what I said to him demonstrated an evil inside of me that I think I'm all that. I'm all cool, right? You see, I don't struggle with darkness. I... Uh, I can walk in a house and I can walk around places. Uh, when I was a police officer, I'd, I'd walk a beat in the middle of the night, be walking around, shaking doors, doing things in the dark. It didn't bother me at all. But Caden had a fear. And out of this mouth came a disparaging comment to him that was hurtful. And it displayed something not good about what was inside of me at that moment. God wants us to guard that. He wants us to guard our heart to make sure that we are pure and clean and not struggling with some of these things. It's full of deadly poison. With the same tongue we curse men and we praise God. Think about that one. Just think about that phrase for a moment. So out of my tongue, I, we just got done singing praises to God, right? In our songs, we were... We were praising and rejoicing God. We're celebrating God. We're, we're filled with the spirit of praise and adoration. Did, were you, did you guys feel that way? I did. Out of that same mouth, at some point could come a cursing, a, a negative comment, a negative put down to somebody else. God's saying that's not a good thing. Guard against that. Look back at the hillside. Is Satan using that as a means to get into you to destroy your testimony? Guard your hearts. 
guard what's inside to be prepared for those things. Well, another book that I was reading recently is a book by Warren Wiersbe. It's called The Integrity Crisis. I was thinking about the condition of our nation right now and all of the things that are going on around us. I shared earlier with some people, but for those of us who were around and growing up in the 60s and early 70s, you remember the anger and the uh, frustration with our country, with the world back then. And there was a lot of anger. There was a lot of, of things that were happening. There was rioting and hurting and, and, and damaging of things and people. And, and it was a really, really difficult time in our country. And I think that right now, as a nation, we're right back there. And it'd be really easy for all of us to start pointing fingers and say it's because of her, or him, or them, or this, or that, right? It'd be easy for us to blame other people and to, to bring condemnation and anger toward those people or those organizations or whatever it might be, but to be angry about those things. And here's what Wearsby had to say. What we need today is not anger, but anguish. The kind of anguish that Moses displayed when he broke the two tablets of the law and then climbed the mountain to intercede for his people. Get the image of that, right? He came down off the mountain. He's carrying these two tablets. God had personally written the commandments on those tablets. And Moses comes down and he sees them bowing down and worshiping a golden calf. And he throws those down out of anger and he breaks them. And he could have just stood there and said, you're all going to go to someplace bad. Because I'm not allowed to say that word. And... It would have been a really justified thing, wouldn't it? He'd been with God. He's carrying something that God had written in his hands. And he confronts them, and he goes back up onto the mountain, and on his knees before God, in anguish of heart, he prays that God would not destroy the nation of Israel. Not for their sake, Not for his sake, but for God's sake. That's why he was asking for forgiveness. That his name would be glorified. That he would not look bad to the other nations. Or that Jesus displays when he cleansed the temple. And then he wept over the city. You remember that? We we often talk about... That section, you know, where Jesus comes into the temple and he's, he's upset because they're selling things and they've made it a, 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 play, a house of, of, of evil instead of a house of prayer. And he gets angry and he throws the tables over and he knocks them down and he forces them out of the building and says, get that stuff out of here. Get, get going. I don't want you in my father's house. And then, after he had cleansed the temple, he humbly before, goes before God the Father and prays for that city. The difference between anger, I'm still quoting, the difference between anger and anguish is a broken heart. 
do you have a broken heart for our nation? Do you have a broken heart for people that you work with? Do you have a broken heart for family members who don't know the Lord? Do you have a broken heart for neighbors and friends? Do you have a broken heart for people who are outside of the faith? Or do you look at them and say, I've got it figured out. It's your tough luck if you don't have it figured out. It should be the broken heart. That's what God's desire is for us. It's easy to get angry, especially at somebody else's sin, isn't it? But it's not easy to look at our own sin and then weep over it. Because that takes true introspect. It takes true looking at yourself and saying, yeah, I messed up, God. I messed up. I don't have it all together. Even if I said I did, I don't. What Satan loves is for us to get angry at the failings and frustrations in life. What God desires is that we would come to him in anguish, brokenhearted for a world that so desperately needs a Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, I started with this. I want to just share one more thought on this. When I was in the Army, I was stationed at the Pentagon for two, a little over two years. And while I was there, William Westmoreland became, or he was a four-star general. He was the uh, general of the Army. He was the highest-ranking Army military general. He wasn't just the jazz as was talked about in the book about him being the general of Vietnam. No, he was over all of the army. General Westmoreland uh, was just on the hall from the office that I worked with, worked in. I worked for General Stilwell, who was a deputy chief of staff for military operations. And there were occasions when I had to go down to General Westmoreland's office. And a couple of occasions, I actually met General Westmoreland. So this kind of, when I read this, this kind of jumped off for me. Well, General Omar Bradley was the last five-star general of the army. They did away with the rank after General Omar Bradley. But, but Omar Bradley was still, he still had an office at the Pentagon, and every once in a while I would see him as I was walking up and down the hallway. And I, and I would see him coming in, and he always came with an entourage, and you know he went into his office. And it was just kind of cool as I was reading this and thinking about it. But then it made me think about, okay, so... Omar Bradley, he, he went on and became a five-star five general. What if General William Westmoreland, when he was in this military training, had said, I got this, Omar. Hey, hey dude, I got it all together. You know, I, I, I led that force up there. I can handle things myself. I would almost bet you that he would not have become a four-star general, the highest-ranking general in the U.S. Army. But I believe what this book says is that General Westmoreland, when he was a, a, a captain in the, the academy, he listened to this man who said, look back. And he looked back and he learned. 
And my challenge for you and for me today is that we will look back and see what area of weakness we have. An area that we have to protect and guard because as Christians we need to humble ourselves and in anguish of heart seek God and his will for our lives and for our nation. If we don't do it, who will? If you don't do it for yourself, who will? You have to humble yourself and come to God in integrity of spirit and heart and ask that he would help you. I shared with my ABF class this morning that I felt like when I got to this point in my message, I probably had kind of made you all feel like, what kind of hope is there in that message, Pastor Hank? I mean, that's pretty discouraging. You said we're all messing up and we all say and do things and what hope is there for us? Well, turn one more please. First John. God gave me this verse yesterday. As I was working on the men's breakfast, I, I had my Bible and my book and I was kind of just re- reading, kind of going through and rethinking some things and, and God laid this, these verses on my heart. And I'm going to start actually in verse 5. I was going to start later, but I'm going to start in verse 5 of chapter 1 of 1 John. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Remember that, Caden. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here it is. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. I don't care how righteous you think you are. If you look at yourself with honesty and integrity, you will see that we are all sinners who fall short of God's glory. There is not a one of us can stand before God and say, look at me, I've got this all figured out. Not a one. And if you do, you're deceiving yourself, and the truth is not in you. And verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can never achieve more than what the nation of Israel did on our own strength and power. We cannot do it. Because by nature we are sinners. We all sin and fall short of God's glory. But the beautiful thing is here. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and capable. He is able to forgive our sins. Why? Because Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a perfect life. He died on that cross. He was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. But God raised Him back to life. He died to take your sins and mine upon himself. He has made a promise and he will not go back on that promise. He has promised us that if we trust in him, if we believe in him with all our heart, we will spend eternity with him in heaven. And praise God that I can't do it on my own. 
I can rely on God who so loved me. While I was still and yet a sinner, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, for that very purpose, that very mission. I hope you're encouraged by the end if you weren't encouraged by the rest. Because God has not left us to our own. But God made us, provided a provision for us to spend eternity with him. Would you join me in prayer? God, I thank you for your word and the promises and the hope that we have that is found only in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us where we have failed you, where we have taken on ourselves the baggage of life and somehow convinced ourselves that we have to do this all on our own ability and power. But God, we're grateful that we are saved by grace through faith. And even that faith is not something that I can conjure up enough of, but rather you have given it to us. Thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you for salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Without that, we would be like those Israelites who stand out there bowing down to a God that is no God at all. But with Jesus, we have a hope and a promise that's secure in your finished work. So thank you, God. We love you. Help us to live our lives demonstrating that in Jesus' name. Amen.